Hello. Bonjour. Bonjour. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. We're delighted you've joined us to learn more about fertility and the latest research from highly respected and experienced experts within the industry. My name is Dave Morrill, and I'm the Director of Clinical Support at Cooper Surgical. In this episode, I'm joined by Laura Rienzi and Professor Bill Ledger. Laura is the Scientific Director of General Life IVF Network and Adjunct Professor of Biotechnology in Assisted Reproduction at the University of Urbino in Italy. Bill is Head of Obstetrics and Gynaecology and leads a fertility research group at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. In addition, he works with the City Fertility Group of IVF centres. So I'm delighted to have two such renowned and accomplished guests to talk today about the laboratory and clinical aspects of vitrification, which is central to so many aspects of assisted reproduction treatments. This sort of leads me on to, um, you mentioned, Lara, the, the, the technicalities and how the, the slight variations in technique might lead to um, some issues around survival. Um, and I guess that leads us on to how we assess the competency of staff doing vitrification and warming. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts are about um, how you... Uh, train a new person to do vitrification and where the cutoff is for when you'll allow them to do clinical cases? So, no, I'm completely crazy about KPI. So we have KPI for everything in the lab and we, we, we track uh, everything also because we have um, a computerized um, a tracing prog- uh, program. I don't want to to be any to make any kind of publicity but of course when you have an automatic system that uh, can record every kind of manipulation in the lab you can also have very specific kpis for operators for technologies so we use uh, this traceability system as much for to control the traceability and to control the operators uh, quality of work it is a manual procedure so we have to control um, the training, uh, so KPIs is weekly on everything, which means uh, fertilization, blastocysts for me. What is objective? I would try to have objective KPI because if you say quality on day three, I mean, it's not an outcome because uh, you will have different view and different way to grade a, a, a day three embryo. But if you say blastocyst formation, it's more trustable. So our our denominator is 2PN, blastocyst formation, survival after warming. These are really very trustable KPI. And to track them weekly, I mean, in a constant way, and to analyze them weekly helps a lot to understand if there are some problem in the lab. We have also analyzed is the first vitrification of the day has the same outcome as the last vitrification of the day to understand oh, when you are tired and it's... Uh, it's uh, and if the number one is different from number three or number 10 from the same operator, so we track really everything. And this is key. It's key for the successful of the lab, but it's key also to answer to the uncertainties that comes from a gynecologist. Maybe a week, 
there is a lower pregnancy rate because patient variability, because we know that in IVF we have a lot of differences week by week. Of course, we do a lot of uh, huge numbers, so these differences are a little bit lower, but sometimes it happens that there are some gynecologists that are stressed, saying uh, uh, my results are going a little bit lower. What happens? If you have strong KPI in the lab, you can answer, you can reassure, you can show numbers. So it's extremely important from the lab to have everything under control for ourselves, but also to communicate to the gynecology and have a very, very good environment between the lab and the gynecologist. And this is the key, and this is, I think, the success of our centers is because uh, uh, we are partner, a clinician and an embryologist, and we have been always on the same plane and communicating every day between us. And we have transmitted that to all the other centers. So uh, control, uh, numbers, statistics, because we do also statistics to see if it is uh, um, some uh, significance, and training. Also, we have a huge program for training. We uh, freeze a lot of, um, of immature oocytes, so GVs and M1 that are not useful for the patient to train, uh, to train the new embryologist. Uh, it takes a lot of time in our in our setting, more than 100 vitrification with a tutor, and then more than 50 vitrification with uh, also with a tutor. So, but if you set your lab uh, thinking about training as a duty of a lab, as well as doing ICSI and and vitrification, it comes natural. It's come natural that one hour per day is dedicated to training technology per technology for the new embryologist that comes in the lab. And, and we, we have trained a lot of embryologists, not only for our centers, but also for other centers. And, and it is also something that uh, makes our job even, even better. No? It's, I mean, communication with patients is very, very important, but also to, uh, to, to communicate to others your knowledge is something that a scientist should do always. Absolutely, and, that, and those are those are big numbers that you're talking about, Lara, with, on on the training side, a hundred uh, immature eggs. But presumably, as a clinician, Bill, knowing that the that the lab has robust training and um, methods of determining ongoing competence, that's that's a prerequisite as a as a clinician to know the lab is providing that sort of reassurance. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think we need to see the KPIs along with the embryology team. So we are kept up to date with how the lab is doing. And it, as Lara says, this is a team effort. We're all members of the team and work in a very flat structure, which is healthy. But I think the general point is having trainees is a good thing. And the same would go for having clinical trainees in the gynecology team, probably nursing trainees as well as science trainees. It keeps us all on our toes. They ask questions that we need to try and answer and have the honesty. If we don't know the answer, go and find it or we'll help get them to help us. And I do think if ever you need healthcare, make sure that you go and get treated in a, in a centre that trains young doctors and young scientists and young nurses because the quality is the best. Um, and yes, it takes time. It is very rewarding, especially when you see your trainees do well and become seniors in their own right. That's something that is is great for the trainer. And you make lifelong friendships with these people as well. So personally, it's a good thing. But as a quality agenda, I think having trainees in your lab and your clinical setting is, is invaluable. And, and I would assume that the, the recent Maribor consensus document with clinical 
um, performance indicators. And in the lab, we have the, the, the Vienna and Istanbul papers that cover KPIs. They're critical, aren't they, to, to raising standards more, more generally? And, um, but I wanted to, to, to just take one second to, to ask a, a perhaps more difficult question around KPIs. And that's how do we separate um, a particular uh, step in a process and decide whether someone's reaching the right standard? So, for example, um, a blastocyst might be vitrified by one embryologist, warmed by another, and then transferred by a, a doctor. And how do we, can we tease out which is the important um, part of the, the final result? How do we marry those all together? So, may I, Bill? Oh, no, sorry. So, um, it's clear that when you set the KPIs for the lab, first of all, you have to choose KPIs that are not affected by patient population. Because, of course, when, when we look to clinical pregnancy, you have to put so many confounders that you will never be able you know, really to assess which is uh, the difference between one operator and the other. And many different steps have been, of course, uh, done, been done by different operators. So what we try to find is lab KPIs that are going to show the blastocyst formation in general by the lab. Then operators, let's say blastocyst formation, according to the one that has made the ICSI, and the culture, and has prepared the culture dish and put uh, the embryo in culture, because then the embryo will not move from the culture. Then, of course, also technical KPIs, depending on which incubator. Let's see if one incubator is performing better than the others. I told you, it's really very complicated, and you need a software to generate all this data. But when it comes to the operator only, of course, when we look to survival rate, we are going to, to, to look only to those embryos that has been vitrified and warmed by the same operator. In the paper, we have shown that uh, what is the outcome when also there is different operator, but this was based on five years, huge number of licenses. But when it comes to day-by-day -day KPI per operator, we look only to those that has been treated by the same operator, which is not easy sometimes. And Lara, that means that you need to be working in a large centre in order to have enough numbers to make a statistical analysis about the performance of each person as an individual and separate out those cycles in which they've played the major role. A small centre with three or four scientists who, who cross over in their jobs, you may never get that level of clarity because the numbers aren't large enough. Yeah, I believe in concentration of IBF. Mm. I think that uh, we should have less centres, but bigger, to, to mm. really to invest in technology, to, to have training, to produce science. I don't think that a center with 100 or 200 cycle will be able to follow the technical evolution that I hopefully will come in our field. So I see that it's what is happening everywhere in the world, that centers are being concentrated. So centers are acquired or merged. And I think it's very important for the evolution of the field, as it happened in genetics. Okay, Only big lab of genetics can invest in new technology and being able to give us such important information on, on, on genetic side. So 
I, I really believe that in the near future we will have big centers. The only one that can really afford the, the revolution in technology that I hope and believe it will come in our field. To reduce the manual, manual, manuality, to reduce the variability between operator, we need machines and we need control. You've, you've nicely preempted my question about automation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll pass. Uh, no, I, th- I agree that the, the, the manual side of the, uh, the lab will presumably diminish and we'll be more interested in, in the, uh, the, the science and the, the data management rather than the hands-on work. But Yeah, I believe it's, it's so important because imagine how many data are collected today and not analysed because the scientists or the biologists are working with their hands uh, the whole day. Now, when I, I, I talk with colleagues and I say, do, do, do you manage to, to publish something? And they always say, look, I spend all my time in the lab. I don't have time to, to read. I don't have time to write. Uh, so much pressure in the lab. I'm super stressed. So uh, machines can really help, first of all, to standardize. And secondly, to give opportunity to scientists to grow, to acquire information, to study and produce development in our field. No, I agree with you. With the introduction of automation, the danger is that we degrade the embryologist's skills and they merely become people who are feeding the machine. And I think when the machine goes wrong and there will be malfunction and there will be times when the pregnancy rate goes down, the blastocyst survival rate goes down, I still think we need to teach people about the science of embryology and the clinical science of manipulating eggs and sperm and embryos that basic skill set, I think, needs to be there, however much we try to automate the large lab which treats most patients. And also, there are going to be cases that are exceptional. You only have one or two eggs or someone has a recurrent problem of one sort or another where you'll want to apply a, a more manual approach. So I hope the future will be a hybrid and we won't treat the mainstream and lose the quality of care we can give to the people who are, who are less easy because the machine-driven processes don't, don't fit. So I feel at the beginning it will be a hybrid because we will not trust the machine. But if you look to other technological fields like uh, genetics, nothing is manual anymore. Nothing. Because they trust machine better than the better, uh, the better manual uh, embryologists or geneticists. So I don't think uh, that it will be hybrid in the future when the technology will be applied. Imagine vitrification. I mean, it, you have to change just the, the, the culture, the, the, the media, and then put it on a carrier. Why we should not trust a machine that can really standardize that? Of course, we, are, we have not to date machines that are able to do that because it's very complicated. But once we will have it, we are not going to downgrade the embryologists because to do it manually is not what we have studied five years or six years. So... We, have, we are going to upgrade the embryologist, but it's going to be a scientist coming back on looking on the data and being able really to make the difference. The machine can take over the manual procedure, but then the decision-making will always be for the embryologist. Of course, if a machine breaks, we have to be able to rescue the cell, but I agree. So in the training of an embryologist, the rescue manner should always be, be available, but... Um, 
I am very positive and very optimistic that uh, in 10 years' time, the uh, 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 embryology club will look completely different. I think it's a good analogy with, with commercial aircraft that these days the aeroplane can practically fly itself, but people don't want to board a plane without a pilot who can take over in emergency. And but the pilot will be there. Yes. <laughs> the the embryologist, of course, will be there. Yes. But I trust more an airplane with, with an automatic pilot and everything under control than a plane which is only dri- driven by a pilot without any, no? No, any yes. help from the, from the technology. So it is something that has to be guided and controlled by the scientists, but not, uh, not depending only on, on, on the manual procedure. It's a good good time to move things on to <laughs> to the to the clinical side. So, um, let's consider the uh, the transfer procedures and, and Bill. I'm, I'm, I'll come to you first, if I may. Um, so we've we've vitrified and we've warmed and we have this beautiful biological material ready to transfer back to the patient. What are the relative merits and risks of of transfer of the vitrified warmed embryos in natural cycle uh, transfer cycles compared to the hormonally prepared cycles, and you touched on this a little bit earlier. I guess again, it's not a case of one size fits all. The patient who's going to have transfer in a natural cycle has to have a good quality, regular ovular cycle that's been assessed and shown to have the right endocrine parameters, the right endometrial development. And something that we can track and know exactly when the LH surge occurs and therefore we can time the transfer. And we see that probably in 60 or 70% of the cases that we treat. I find that generally women prefer a natural cycle transfer if possible just because it's hormone free and, and easier for them to run. And the contrast between a stimulated cycle with many injections and many interventions is quite striking. And I, I live in Eastern Australia, which, which is a kind of laid-back part of the world, and women don't like medication unless they have to have it, so it's pretty popular having natural cycle. Um, and we find, and it's been shown in many studies, that the pregnancy rate and live birth rate from natural cycle transfer of frozen blastocysts is the same, at least not inferior, to a medicated cycle in ovulating women. It's more difficult for the lab and for the clinic to manage because of the unpredictability of the timing, and you have to be prepared to run a seven-day service for transfer if you're going to do true natural cycle. Many clinics will give an HCG trigger to try and avoid a Sunday transfer or maybe even Saturday-Sunday, and and the results that we read seem comparable. And so provided there is enough time for a good endometrial development and the endocrine profile looks okay, probably an HCG trigger is acceptable and, and it's sort of quasi-natural still. And it may be that the, the, the obstetric problems we alluded to earlier are, are less prevalent in those natural cycles than in stimulated cycles. Okay. For the woman, for example, with polycystic ovary or someone who's close to or at menopause, obviously they're not having a good natural cycle, so we have to do something medical with that group and, and they're increasingly large group. So big centers that work seven days out of seven can really manage easily also natural cycle uh, and the transfer. So I think, again, we have to, to offer the best to the patient and as best as possible, as you said. 
Uh, and for this, we have to be prepared and, and the lab, for me, the lab has to be open seven days out of seven because for biopsies, for transfer, there is no way to control the day of development of the, of the blastocyst. So I agree with you. As less medication we are able to give, less pressure we put on the women, less, uh, and of course, uh, more compliance. So I agree. And the ones in whom it's not possible... Our preference generally is low-dose FSH with trigger if if we can for someone who may have polycystic ovary syndrome. But the fallback on estrogen, progestogen cycles works fine. It's, it's easy to manipulate the timing, so that's convenient. We do use ERA to look at endometrial receptivity for women who've had two or three transfers of good embryos and not pregnant. And those cycles need to be replicated from the ERA biopsy cycle to the transfer cycle. So a hormonally controlled cycle there is is optimal. Um, so, David, I guess the answer is you have to have availability of all those techniques and a good experience and knowledge of how to use them. And as Lara says, have a clinic which is able to support you in delivering whichever is the most appropriate. And that, in our experience, certainly includes a Saturday service for transfer and, and probably Sundays as well. Um, mostly it seems to fall to the senior staff to do the Sunday work. I'm not sure why that is, but it seems to be the way it is in our centre anyway. All makes sense. One one of the other areas around scheduling that that at least causes some consternation between clinicians and the laboratory is how long you wait after the warming, particularly of blastocysts, before you do the transfer. And so I'd be interested to see what the two of you think in terms of if when we're warming a blastocyst, how long we should allow for expansion and what you do if the re-expansion is poor? So in our setting is at least one hour. We assess the re-expansion of a blastocyst after one hour and we, we do the transfer uh, uh, maximum two hours from warming. The problem is when uh, the blastocyst is not re-expanded after one hour and we have to, uh, to warm a second blastocyst. And then, of course, all the schedule change because we don't have time enough and it's where problems can be between the lab and the, and the clinician. But this is quite a rare condition, luckily. Uh, but we would not transfer a non-expanded blastocyst after one hour. We prefer to cancel the transfer or to warm a second one and postpone the transfer of one, one hour. And all the, all the clinicians, I mean, this is a protocol that we have and we all agree with that. So we know that we have to reschedule in case of problem. Non-survival. Non-survival is easier because then we, we warm the second one immediately. But non-re-expansion, for us, it is an indication to continue in warming in case, they, they, of course, there are other areas. Yeah. I'm sure that's the right for you, approach. Yeah, I'm sure that's the right approach. And again, it's a matter of communication with the patient about what's happening. Something is suboptimal. This is the approach we're going to adopt. And it takes at least an hour, doesn't it, to be sure that you have a, a good thaw and the embryo is good to be transferred. Timing is always difficult with busy clinicians and a busy clinic where they may only be a 15-minute window for someone's transfer, and if they fall out, they have to be fitted in somewhere else. But as you say, thankfully, these are not common problems, and there's usually a way around somewhere to squeeze in a transfer into the morning schedule that allows you to do it with reasonable time. Thank you, Lara Rienzi and Bill Ledger. And thank you also to everyone who's tuned in to this episode of Fertility Insights. 
please like, share, comment, and make sure to tune in to our next episode. Please note that speakers have received a fee from Cooper Surgical for participating in this podcast.